0: He has revolutionized research into Indo-European migration based on his study of the Rigveda, Avesta and the Mitanni references. He has successfully identified several historical informations from the Rigveda. He has explored the theory history of the kings and the sages who composed the Rigvedic hymns. Talagiri utilized for his analysis the Anupramanis in Rigveda, which are often neglected by scholars. He establishes that Rigveda was composed by sages living in the Saraswati river valley between Saraswati and Ganga, who were the patrons of the kings who ruled in this area, for example the Purus and particularly the Bharata branch of the Purus. Talagiri equates the Vedicarians to the Puro's and Iranians to a sibling branch that is the Anus. Other sibling branches include the Drayus, the Yadus, and the Turvasus. Talagiri is the author of three books a aryan American theory theory been appraisal, a historical analysis and reqeda and avesta the final evidence containing serious scholarship on the art of indian theory of the aryan migration i request dr Est to present a citation and uh, uh, felicitate uh, talagiri by giving him a puneeri and a Academy are pleased to felicitate and honor a scholar of his eminence and we express our gratitude for his service to Sanasandra. And now, let's move on to the most awaited event, which is Dr. s lecture. I request Shailendra Marathi.
1: His conclusions about them are derived not only based on the religious source materials and scriptures, but also on the practices today of the adherents to those religions. One of his books, Who is a Hindu, is a classic describing various aspects of Hinduism, such as its connection with his daughter religions, like Buddhism, Jainism, and Doctors asserts that the greatest essence of Hinduism it is its plurality in religious observances such as monotheism, Politism, atheism, multiple paths towards attaining the truth of salvation such as bhakti and karma, Politism, which is plurality in visualising the divine principle as Eastern atheism, or favorite form of God. Traditionalism, Closeness to nature in rituals and nature worship, tolerance to various religions, including Norway's food. He also thinks that Sanatana Dharma, a more apt term for Hinduism, has no need to imitate other religions, which are stuck with morotism, narrow mindedness, intolerance, and attachment to historical events or figures. Uh, Dr. Ernst has written exhaustively about what really happened in the and he has thoroughly exposed the blatant lies that were propagated by some of the eminent historians in this regard. So, uh, in detail, I now request Dr. Ernst to share his thoughts on today's topic, which is ancient history and modern politics. <clears throat>
2: Shall till we one to when Can I speak? My time constraints. Twenty-five minutes. Forty-five. Okay. 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 There we go. Well, where do we begin now? Um. In the ancient period, perhaps ancient history or what was then ancient history, may already have been a concern, like when the Pandavas during the Mahabharata battle included Hanuman in their flag. Hanuman then was ancient history, okay. Um, But okay, for that period, there's not so much unless we come across something uh, in modern debates. So we skip and we go to the Muslim period. And there it becomes very simple. Uh, Ancient history is not important. It should not be studied. It should not be debated. It should only be destroyed because it is part of Jai that is the age of ignorance. Nevertheless, some Muslim sources do occasionally say something, something you know, very limited about ancient times, like, for instance, the Niyabari, e. the Mughal court chronicle by Abu Fazl, speaks about the fact that the Purana Qila, the old fort in Delhi, was built on an earlier place called what he calls Indrapat. That is to say, Indra Prastha. Now here we have a very nice example of our present topic. You see, Indra Prastha is ancient history, but it has become relevant in modern politics. You see, some time ago, some bureaucrat in Delhi decided to um, make the Purana Kilari area the hub of tourism in India so that you see people could get a first idea of the periodization of Indian history there. Only the accent then was on the medieval period, and particularly on a very, very short phase of this area, which was under Humayun, who wanted to redesign the area as the Pana. But you see, Deen Pana was his, his little utopia. He wanted to have a private glimpse of paradise. So you see, this area was going to be his Din Now what does Din mean? Aha. So it's uh, Urdu, um, and Pana means a refuge, an asylum. And what does Din mean? Anyone who knows? Names like, you know, Salahuddin, Shahabuddin, Kamaruddin, Saifuddin, and so on. What does deen mean? It's only one word. You all know the word. No, I don't hear anyone mention the word. It's a very simple word. Yeah, well, strictly it means religion. Originally it meant religion. Um, uh, or justice. It's exactly like the word dharma in Sanskrit. It has the whole range of ethics to religion, originally. Like it's related to the Hebrew word dhyam, which means a judge. Hmm. didn't exist yet in the time of Humayun. Humayun used it in another sense, which was introduced by Muhammad. Muhammad started using deen in the exclusive sense of Islam. And so, for example, Saifuddin, Saif means sword, Saifuddin means the sword of Islam, Kamaruddin means the moon of Islam. Badruddin means the Badr of Islam. Badr meaning one of the sites where the Islamic army scored one of its most spectacular victories. That incidentally is why I have written a number of articles in the Belgian press under the name of Uhududdin, <laughs> because Uhuddin is the site of one of the spectacular defeats of the Islamic army. It's sort of like the water do of Islam. Okay, um, so this dinpana actually means the refuge of Islam. Now it was very short lived. Uh, you know, Humayun was ousted from Delhi by Sher Shah Suri and his general Hema uh, Chandra, who later became the ruler of Delhi for a few weeks and then was defeated by the young Akbar and beheaded. And so, you see, to name the area Deenpana is already stupid because of the complete unimportance. By contrast, Indraprastha existed for some 2,000 years. Uh, but there is another reason why deen Panna would be very unfit as a name. You know, if they called an area of Delhi, Delhi refuge of Hinduism, while, of course, that would historically be a very appropriate name, immediately the secularists would flare up and say, a communal! Now, deen Panna is for the same reason, <laughs> communal. So, that is also a reason why it should never be called Deepana. Now, there has been some some lobbying by this uh, Draupadi Dream Trust who organized this Indraprastha conference and exhibition. And so, it seems that the idea of this Deepana has been shelved. But we might hear more about it. If it depends on the DJP, then certainly it will come back.
0: But. Um,
2: Okay. Now, why is Indraprasta such a good idea? You see, I think that the area should be renamed Indraprasta. In fact, Delhi should be renamed Indraprasta. You know, all the embassies in the world, you know, should refer to Indraprasta. You know, they should tell the customers, oh, I've received orders from Indraprasta, that isn't that. Hmm? You see, it's a, it's a pretty good name, it was given by Yudhishthir, Yudhishthir in Indraprastha, you know, he, he set it up as his capital, you know, the empire of the Kauravas was being divided and so, you know, they, they started their own state with Indraprastha as the new capital. Now. This is where yudhishthir became a Dharmaraja, a King of Righteousness. So that's already a pretty proud beginning. But prastha means, uh, you know, what we nowadays call a colony, a place where you go and settle. Like Vala prastha means one who has the forest as a, uh, a colony, as a place to settle, one who goes to settle in the forest. Say somebody who retires from society. Now, so Indra Prasta is the colony named after Indra. Now, what is so great about Indra? You see, Indra is the thunder god, and there is nothing communal about thunder gods, on the contrary. The thunder god is the god par excellence, because thunder and lightning are the universal, natural image of heaven interfering in earthly life. And you know that's what all religions are about. And therefore you find a thunder god in every pantheon. You see it is Zeus in Greece and Jupiter in Rome and Donar or Thor among the Germans and um, similarly Baal among the Phoenicians, and Marduk among the Babylonians, and so on. In fact, let me tell you two very unexpected faces of Indra in other countries. One of them is Yahweh. You see, the word Yahweh comes from an Arabic root which is attested in the Quran, Halas and uh, it means to blow or to move in the sky like the stars you see them moving in the sky that's already divine. you know the stars that's the origin of the concept of the cross but more importantly the wind is a symbol of subtle heavenly influence on earth you see, the wind is subtle, you can see through it, but at the same time it's there, it's exerting, exercising a force. Okay. Then, you see, to move in the sky also means to swoop down like an eagle swooping down on its prey, which is a very good image of um, the winds of destiny suddenly interfering in your life. like one day you get a telephone call from Narendra Modi asking you to become a minister in his cabinet. Who knows, it may happen to one of you. Soon. So, you see, that is, that is symbolized by these eagle swooping down. So, you see, this existed among the northwestern Arabs, including a Bedouin tribe called the Midianites. Now, one day, the Midianites when they were drawing water at the well saw a stranger uh, looking for refuge he was a fugitive from Egypt and he was called Moses Moses is an Egyptian name and he is the son of Black Tooth Moses is the son of Thoth and so he was was, uh, wanted in Egypt for having committed a murder so you see he was running away living there and so he got to know their coat of the storm god Yahweh the blower and um, he took that coat with him and in fact it is there that he got a vision of Yahweh appearing in the burning bush and so then in the Bible you get a whole explanation a mistaken etymology a folk etymology where Yahweh is explained as he who is not he who blows, but he who is and so that's a mistake, but it, it, lo- it looked very profound you know, like God is the one who necessarily is who exists you know, we, you know, changes our lot and so we don't exist, we exist, and we don't exist again whereas God, he necessarily always exists so that's what they read into it, but in fact, it's, it's a different story He means the storm god. And uh, anyway, so Yahweh was then transformed into a chalice god and so on. But still he retained some characteristics of the storm god, like he was choleric. He could suddenly become very wrathful, just like a thunderstorm suddenly appears. Then there is another god in the Middle East, who also has characteristics of Indra, namely Baal. You may have heard the name of Baal. Um, so you, you know him all very well through an episode that you might have learned, even though it has nothing to do with Hinduism, namely the Golden Calf. You see, Indra is symbolized by a bull. Jupiter abducts the princess Europe, Europa in the form of a bull. And Baal also appears in the form of a bull. And so the Israelites donate their jewels, and they make a golden calf. That's Baal. And so in that scene, of course, Baal and Yahweh enter a confrontation, and the followers of Yahweh massacre all the followers of Baal. So that's very much, you know, a confrontation. Yet, essentially, Baal and Yahweh are the same person, are the same divine character. So, and, and that same Yahweh later becomes Allah. You see, Muhammad says that this sender of prophets, this Yahweh, you know, I call him Allah, but is the same fellow, and therefore I'm a hearer of the earlier prophets. So, therefore, everybody in Delhi, Muslims, uh, Christians, uh, Hindus, they should all be happy with the name in Dravda. Instead of this vicious communal name, Deepa, you see, they should have this. Secular pluralistic name, uh, Indra. Okay, that's very important. And if there's anyone serious in Delhi about secularism, then they know what to choose. So I would say Indra, Indra Prasta Amar Rahe. <laughs> Moreover, there are some very modern themes in this ancient Indra, <coughs> like. In the Atharva Veda, you have the concept of the Indra Jala, the Indra's net, which means a net, you know, which has these knots uh, uniting different threads. And in the knot there is a diamond and that reflects the diamonds in all the other knots and therefore the entire net. Now, it took about 4,000 years for the Europeans to discover a similar concept, namely the holographic paradigm. You see, where the part reflects the whole. Like for example, the human body is like that. In every cell you have the same genetic code. Um, So that's one. Then an entirely different application. You see, Indra fell a bit into disuse as a god by the time Hindus started building temples, there was no Indra anymore. That also makes it easy, you see. Muslims have killed many temples of Shiva, like the Somnath temple, but they never destroyed the temple of Indra, simply because there weren't any. So, you know, that also avoids a little controversy. Um, But, you see, before he entirely fell into disuse, the Buddha still um, managed to uh, get instructions from Indra to spread his path to enlightenment. And that's how Buddhism started, thanks to Indra. And therefore, Buddhist monks spread the cult of Indra as far as Japan. There are no temples to Indra in India, but in Japan there are. So again, you see, Indra is such a pluralistic you know, global, uh, cosmopolitan god, you know. India should really be proud to name its capital after him. You see, that is the relevance of ancient history in modern politics. Hmm? Okay, so by now you will have understood that I am all for Indraprastha. I hope many of you by now are like-minded. Um, now, at the Indraprasta conference, which took place in Delhi two weeks ago, where I spoke, essentially, you see, because we all agreed about Indraprasta, uh, most of the conference papers were about related with different topic, namely the age of the Mahabharata, <clears throat> and so uh, I spoke about the different types of evidence. All converging on a similar date. And um, I'll I'll summarize it in a few sentences. The traditionalists, the Hindu traditionalists say "Ah, it was in the 32nd century BC. Because somewhere there's a tradition that says that Indra died 37 years after the war namely in 3,102, when the Kali Yuga started. Okay, well, I disagree for a number of reasons. Uh, Archaeologically, each of the sites of the Mahavarata, um, Astinapura, Indraprastha, and so on, uh, have been excavated, and none of them reaches back to 3,000 B.C., B. Bilal was the main organizer, contents wise. He himself has done most of these excavations, and so he came to testify well, you know, it's a pity, but no, in 3000 BC, none of them existed. More, well, not more importantly, that, that much is important, but you see something that I specifically contributed. Um, archaeology has some conclusions about the use of uh, chariots. And so the oldest chariot known to archaeologists was in 2200 BC in Sintashta in Russia. And you see, military technology tends to spread very fast. Because, you know, if you have a battle to win, you cannot be choosy. You know, anything that's useful, you will take it over. So, if you hear that in another country they have something new, immediately you will try to apply it yourself. So, um, you know, chariot technology started in about that time. And we know when the high tide of chariot technology in war- warfare was. This is in the second half of the second millennium, like the War of Troy took place in about the 13th century B.C. Uh, The war between the Egyptians and the Hittites, you know, then the manual of horse training, which precisely had its eye on this chariot warfare by the Mitanni was in 1400, 1500 B.C., and so on. The pursuit of the Israelites by the Pharaoh reported in the Bible should have taken place in some 1300 B.C. So that's about when it should have happened. Now, some Indian chauvinists will say, ah, yeah, but India was much earlier. Now, first of all, that doesn't appear from the archaeological record. And again, you see, uh, chariot warfare is a technique that spreads very rapidly. From India to Mesopotamia is not a big distance. So it is inconceivable that it existed in India. And only a 1,000 years later, it appeared in West Asia. then uh, there is the question of the Saraswati uh, You see it is archaeologically certain that it dried up Mostly around 1900 BC We have it as a full Mighty river in the Rigveda, Which was written before 1900 BC However not in the Mahabharata We have Bhima You see cross all these rivers Going to the northwest Or coming back And the Saraswati is not among them then we have, and this is very important in the battle, it's not something that may have been fantasized by later editors of the poem, you know. Uh, it's the fact that Balarama, Krishna's brother, goes on pilgrimage to the Saraswati, and particularly to the vanishing point of the Saraswati. So we know that at that time it was a struggling little river that ended up drying in the desert instead of a mighty river flowing to the sea. So this was definitely after nineteen hundred BC. Finally there is the astronomical evidence which is very clear. You can't miss it. A number of times in the Mahabharata it is said by Bhishma himself and by others, by Yudhishthira also, that Bhishma died two criteria, after the winter solstice and during the month of uh, Magha which is the month you know when the full moon is in asterisms including the one containing the star Magha or Regulus Uh, how much how many days after the solstice we don't know exactly Um, it is conventionally said that he died in the Uh, in the one-fourth of the bright half of the the moon. Um, However, one-fourth does not mean the bright half of the moon, which is like four days. But, you know, a quarter moon means simply a quarter of the whole month, therefore a week or seven days. And um, at any rate, you see, this can all be discussed, but uh, conventionally it is said that Bhishmashtami the day when Bhishma died is on the 8th of the month of uh, uh, Magha Um, but then we don't know for sure that Uttarayana the turn to the north the solstice was on the first day of Magha that we don't know for sure so anyway sometime after the solstice that's all we know but at any rate when was this solstice you see Uh, The star Regulus was on the solstice point in 2300 B.C. And then, due to the precession of the equinoxes, it moved away from the solstice at the rate of 1 degree per 71 years. So if it is 8 degrees, it comes down to 560 years. It should be 1700 B.C or if it is more, well, then it is later. But at any rate, it can not possibly be before 2300 B.C. So, you see, the end result is um, the Mahabharata War must have taken place sometime in the second millennium B.C. Now, there are other data, stellar data of configurations of planets and so on, that are used to pinpoint a more precise date, That was not the topic of my paper. Um, All I'm saying is, second millennium, definitely not the classical date. Now, the interesting thing is, but then how did this classical date catch on? Aha. Now, that is important because it has a lot more ramifications than just the Mahabharata chronology. The concept of four world ages is age old, and it exists not just in India but in Greece, in Scandinavia, even among the Mayas in Middle America. Now the time when the Mayas and the Hindus were one people, you see that goes back at least 20,000 years, because then you see the Native Americans move through Siberia to America, and so we know that it is very old, but it was not quantified like in Greece, you see the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, and so on. Nobody knows when one started, you see how long it took, and so on. So the same thing counts for the old concept of the four Yugas in India. And then, yes, it is said that when Krishna died, the Kali Yuga started. Now, when Mahatma Gandhi was shot, Nehru improvised the speech saying, the light has gone out you know, the age of darkness has started the Kali Yuga has set in now it's a figurative way of speaking you see Krishna was the light of our lives and so on and now he's dead so now the age of darkness has set in that's all And so the age of darkness is a figurative concept uh, there's no specific date attached to it however um, in the 2nd century BC, Hipparchos in Alexandria discovered the precession. Until then, it was not, probably not known. There's no sign of it at any rate. Um, in fact, there are signs that it was not known. Like in the uh, Maitri Upanishad, there is a passage where you know, the, the uh, rampancy of chaos is described. So there are many signs of chaos in the world and one of them is the falling away of the pole star which means that the bright star that used to be the pole star is moving away from the pole. Now that is because of the precession. So it means that at that time they observed the fact of the precession but they didn't understand it yet. They thought that you know there's something wrong with the world. No, it was an application of an existing law namely the precession of the equinoxes. Um, So, uh, you know, at any rate, in the beginning of the age of after Christ, this knowledge came to India via the Indo-Greeks in Afghanistan. And so then, you see, it was being used in the Siddhantas, Siddhantic astronomy. Um, And there they started, uh, first of all, estimating the age of this precession cycle, you know, which is of 25,000 something. So they estimated it at 24,000, thereabouts. And then, because it was such a great cycle, they said, oh, well, this must be the Yuga cycle. And so the yoga figures were fitted into that. But then later, you see, when this Yuga concept, you know, this quantification of the Yugas had caught on, then, out of reasons of awe, of piety, of devotion, You know, these ages were magnified, times 360, times 1,000. And then you get completely unwieldy periods like, you know, Kali Yuga being 432,000 years. So that's the situation. However, that is not classical. The Mahabharata never says anywhere it's in 3,102 B.C., you know, it is only Aryabhata in the 6th century that says 3,600 years ago then uh, the, the Kali Yuga started. Though he himself doesn't identify the start of Kali Yuga with the death of Krishna. You see, that's another passage that happens then in the Mahabharata. And so all these things were linked. And then you get the idea, the mistaken idea, that the Mahabharata war took place in the 32nd Century BC. Now, as historians, we can all say that, but there are quite a few people in India who don't like this. You see, in um, a conference two months ago of the Maharatiya um, Vidya Bhavan, I spoke about historicity in the Vedas, change in the Vedas, which is essentially something that Srikant has worked on, and I borrowed some ideas from him. Doing proper credit to you, of course. And many people in the audience from these Sanskrit departments, you know, uh, were very angry at me. You know, there was a friend of mine sitting in the audience, and everybody knew he was a friend of mine, and so he was accosted by some neighbors Make him stop! Make him stop! You know, they were really worked up because I was saying that, you know. Uh, Vedic culture has not always been what it is. Mm. And you know, this is relevant in a number of actual topics. Like, for instance, was there a prohibition on cow slaughter in the Vedas? Maybe, maybe not. You see, that's a subject worthy of discussion. Was there a caste system in the Vedas? Well, because caste is such an you know, important political theme... I will go a little bit deeper into that. Um, in the Vedas, in the, in the family books of the Rig Veda, there is no caste system. And in fact, you see all these moralistic Christian missionaries and their dupes, the Ambedkarites, you know, always say, oh, you see, Hinduism has, it's a conspiracy theory. Hinduism has imposed the caste system on everyone. You know, it's not the people themselves who developed the caste system. No, it was imposed on them. You see, the evil Brahmins, you know, they were conspiring and they said, hey, hey, you know, we want to grab power by imposing the caste system. That's an idea. We're going to tell people, hey, you are this caste. Hey, you are that caste. And then they will obey us. It's a sort of funny way of reasoning. But you see, that is very common. Now, people who are a little bit more uh, with their feet on the ground, namely the Marxists, and they are not your best Hindus, nevertheless, say very appropriately that there was no caste system in the family books of the Rigveda, Veda. Because, you see, they see all this economically, they said, the, the economic basis of Vedic society was, you know, animal husbandry. And in that kind of society, you do not have the layeredness in different classes. And so, there was just no material basis for a caste system yet. It starts with agriculture and so on. Um, so, Shirin Ratnagar, a Marxist historian, has written that explicitly in a book edited by Romila Thapar. So there, you see, they have this cold, factual approach as opposed to the moralistic hysterical approach by the missionaries in the Ambedkarats. But then at the end of the Rigveda you get the Purusha Sukta and there you first have this mention of the, the four castes. At least their names are mentioned. But all that this hymn says is that there are in a developed society four functions. That's all it doesn't say how they are recruited, whether their job is hereditary. Um, who can marry whom that 's all not said, so there is no trace of caste system there at all. It only says there are four functions of society. Um, the wider context is uh, the fact that there are that there is a similarity between the interconnectedness of the human body and the interconnectedness of the cosmos you know so the primeval man, okay, he is slaughtered and he becomes the cosmos you know, his skull becomes the heavenly vault his two eyes become the sun and the moon his bones become the mountains his blood becomes the rivers and so on and so at a little bit lower level you have society which is also, which is smaller than than the universe which is bigger than man but it also has the same structure as man And there it is then said, you see, the different classes of society are like the different body parts. Now, this is not a new idea or a unique Hindu idea. Uh, In fact, it existed, uh, it was said, the same thing was said by Menenius Agrippa, Roman, uh, in Republican Rome, 400 BC, when there was a revolt by the popular classes, And so they said, we want equality, blah, blah, blah. And he said, but you see, we are all, you know, we, optimates, the upper class, and you, the lower class, we are all like the parts of a body and they have to work together. Um, So, you know, it's the harmony model as against the Marxist class struggle model. And so the same thing was said by St. Paul in the Gospel, or in the New Testament. This is interesting because this approach was used massively by the church in the 19th century when socialism came up. So against the socialist class struggle idea, they posited the harmony model based on St. Paul. Now, if ever a missionary comes to you and says, ah, but the Hindus with their ugly, vicious Purusha Sukta, you see they are the cause of the caste system well then you tell them you see what is in the Purusha Sukta is exactly in St. Paul Um, but then you see the system continues to grow and to harden, then you get the um, Ramayana which was written over a very long period, longer than the Mahabharata and so in the beginning you don't see any caste at all uh, one, I mean, not only at all, I don't know. I, because that I haven't researched that well. You know, Rama is a kshatriya belonging to this solar dynasty of kshatriyas and so on. Maybe there is something in there. But at any rate, he hangs out with tribals, you know, uh, vanaras and so on. Um, but later, when the work is being completed, then caste has become very important. And then you get a Shambhuka story where a Sudra dares to do Brahmin things and therefore has to be killed because he's causing chaos in the kingdom. So there you get a very harsh confirmation of the caste system. Now something similar happens in the Mahabharata. Um, you know, it's a very big book and I've only read the stuff that I thought was important for this chronological question. Uh, but I am told you see people there at the conference said that um, there are two episodes where this comes in that uh, in the Swayambhara of Draupadi um, you know she chooses Arjuna who is the only one to draw the bow but you see at one point she does and in another version she doesn't um, reject uh, Karna because he, he is not a Kshatriya In reality he is, but at that time they don't know yet. Um, So there you see casteism comes in. And you know, that that, uh, lady said that um, in this case um, casteism was brought in by later editors who wanted to promote the idea of caste through the already popular medium of the Mahabharata story. But originally it wasn't there. Uh, Same thing with uh, the famous... Uh, Ekalavya story, which is used all the time by the Ambedkarites. Um, so, Ekalavya is not a tribal. In fact, he is a kshatriya himself, if you follow the story of his genealogy. Um, and anyway, whatever his caste, you see, what Drona does to him has nothing to do with his caste. You see, Drona has been you know, employed by the, the royal dynasty, to train the sons into martial arts to make them the best warriors in the land. Therefore, it is part of his job to make sure that no one else becomes the best warrior. So he, you know, thwarts the rise of Ekalavya. But then later, of course, you get caste in big measure, uh, but also in different stages. Like, at one stage, caste is only in the paternal line the caste of the mother is not important and you have a big number of episodes you know, showing this um, like uh, Vyasa is a, is a Brahmin par excellence you see he is entrusted with the very important task of ordering the Vedas yet he is the son of on the one hand a Brahmin Parashara and on the other a fisherwoman Uh, you have more of these stories Yeah, um, Satyakam uh, Jabala uh, Jabali uh, he um, his mother is not a Brahmin at all she's of the you know, servant class but his father is recognized by his teacher as having been a Brahmin why? because he speaks the truth and only a Brahmin can speak the truth and you see, genetics is such that he passes on his characteristics to his son unchanged. It is a bit like uh, the story of uh, mules, you see, among mules it is such that the son of a horse father and a donkey mother whinnies like his father and like the horses. And the son of a donkey father and a horse mother, he brays like a donkey. So, his most visible or in this case audible characteristic is transmitted in the paternal line, exclusively. So, similarly, your caste characteristics are supposed to be transmitted in the paternal line. Another very important example is in the life of the Buddha where the son of King Prasenajit finds out that he is not a Kshatriya because his mother is not a Kshatriya. So Prasenajit wants to disown them and the Buddha says, no, you shouldn't do that, it's only the father that counts. But Prasenajit says, no, it is both parents who count. So the Buddha is still adhering to the old system and Prasenajit is already following the new system where caste becomes ever more omnipresent. Hmm? Okay, so, you see cars being a very important modern topic, it is in ancient history that you find the whole explanation. Um, Well, you see, I have a few more examples up my sleeve, but it is perhaps better to go on in uh, interactive format at this point, uh, also because you might have important questions that have a priority over anything else i might want to say so if we have a few minutes for for comments or objections whatever the audience at this point feels inspired to say yes
3: of the caste system. Mm. Because I also thought that in the original Vedas or Upanishads the there is no reference of caste system, but at the same time, the Gita, which is a part of Mahabharata, which is a, the 18th uh, chapter. Here we read, Sri Krishna said about the four varnas not caste, he doesn't call it caste. He calls it Chathur Varnan, Mayashishtra, Guna, Karma, Vigaj. That means, I have created four Varnas on the basis of Guna and Karma. And this is a very profound statement in any society. There has to be classification, there has to be somebody teaching somebody else, somebody defending the state, somebody cleaning the room, so, that has been, yeah, okay.
2: yeah, and that has been degenerated into caste. Okay. okay, that is a very important passage, it is quoted all the time by Hindu reformers to say, caste has nothing to do with birth, it has to do with guna and karma. Now, um, first of all, it is of course part of the Mahabharata, but we don't know when it was written, because the Mahabharata has several successive versions, which, obviously looking from outside is the case but which in this case is said by the Mahabharata itself. You know this Jaya, Bharata, and Mahabharata. Um, so you see that may date from an age when caste was already quite alive and if you look properly at the statement it does not at all say that birth is not important. You see and in fact for 2000 years Orthodox Brahmins have never interpreted a saying, Birth is not important. On the contrary. Why? Because guna and karma are very much hereditary. You see, karma is hereditary. You know, you learn a trade from your father. Now, by the time you are old enough to make up your mind about what trade you want to follow, you have already learned so many things from your father. You are much better endowed. For that trade and for any other, Um, then guna, of course, is hereditary. You know, the the foal, the young of a horse, whinnies just like its father. It doesn't bray like the donkey. It doesn't bark like the dog. You know. So again, uh, these things are hereditary. Moreover, elsewhere in the Gita, you find. Arjuna arguing that, you know, I shouldn't fight because if I fight, this will lead to Varna Sankara, to the mixture of castes. And Krishna answers, well, it is if you don't fight that this will lead to Varna Sankara. So two opposite positions are defended both on the basis of the same principle. That means that that principle was already very firmly established in that society. Now the principle is, never ever varna-sankara. So the castes were clearly separated. So, you know, there I think the Hindu reformers are trying to live up to the criteria set by their enemy. You see, you should not do this. You see, these Hindu reformers following the lead given by the anti-Hindu reformers of Hindu society the Christian missionaries the Ambedkarites and so on um, are perforce trying to say that ancient India was not casteist you know it reminds me of the feminists who are trying to deny that there was a clear division of roles in ancient Vedic society who are trying to pretend ancient Hinduism was feminist this is nonsense and it is very bad history trying to impose modern norms on ancient society. You see, ancient society was whatever it was. I mean, look, I'm a descendant of people who brought human sacrifice to the gods. You see, in a city nearby where I've lived for some time, nearby there are swamps. And, you know, in there they regularly find ancient Dead bodies that have been well preserved in this environment, and that were victim, sacrificial victims. So we know that this existed. Now, so what? I have no problem with saying. You see, my ancestors were barbarians. Maybe your ancestors were not. Of course not. But mine were. Okay. So what is the big deal in saying my ancestors were casteists? Now, what's the big deal?
0: Yes. Uh, I Before I pass on the microphone, I request you all to ask the question so that more people can get the chance to reply. Please, thank you. Okay. Thank you. Uh, My question is,
3: I heard about uh, Christianity and uh, then Islam. So, Islam has been derived out of Christianity. And it is said that Christianity is actually the wrote a story of Horus, who was the king in the
2: Egyptian mythology. Is that true? Can you repeat the question? I haven't fully understood. Or anyone? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Well, you see the the idea of a dying god and a revived god. The idea also of a, a mother goddess and a young god sitting in her, in her lap. You know, that, that appears in different pantheons. And so, you know, Jesus, the way his story has turned out, finally, follows that pattern. So whether to, to say it was borrowed from, that is questionable. But the idea of uh, a mother goddess and, you know, Isis, Isis, and the big Horus sitting in her lap, that was, there, that was very popular in the Roman Empire. In fact, it is why today, in my country, quite a few newborn girls are called Isis, which was a very nice name, until <laughs> Isis got a bit of a negative connotation uh, two years ago. <laughs> then you see some parents wish they had given their daughter another name. Now, this man there, no, no, the man behind you, I'd like him first. He's been waiting for some time.